1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kate Carpenter, one of the hosts of this channel, and today I'm excited to be talking with Dr. Jonathan E. Robbins about his new book, Oil Palm, A Global History. Jonathan Robbins, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me on, Kate.
1: Jonathan, could you just start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself?
0: Uh, well, I'm an associate professor of global history in the social sciences department at Michigan Tech. Um, I teach uh, a lot of different courses, but uh, mostly courses on uh, world history and current events. Um, and my research has focused primarily on commodities. Uh, my first book was on cotton. Uh, this new book is on palm oil and the oil palm plant that produces it. Um, yeah, I think that's about it.
1: <laughs> okay, Perfect. Um, yeah. So like you said, Oil Palm is your second book. So what brought you to this subject?
0: Well, when I was working on my my first project, which grew out of my, my dissertation on cotton, um, I was researching the history of colonial cotton growing projects in West Africa. Um, and when you're reading a lot about uh, colonial trade in that period, uh, palm oil just constantly appears. It's everywhere. Um, and it was actually much more important than cotton uh, in, in many of the, the regions and time periods that I was looking at. Um, so it was always on the back of my mind as I was working on this. This was in the late 2000s. Um, and when I finished the cotton project, um, I started looking around for a next thing and, and thought palm oil might be a good uh, good one to do. And I kept waiting for um, a journalist or a science writer uh, to come out with, you know, a sort of pop history of palm oil. And uh, it didn't happen. And I kept waiting and mm-hmm. I kept waiting. Uh, so I thought, okay, maybe I maybe there's a space to try to do a big global history. Um, and, and as it turns out, um, a, a journalist, Jocelyn Zuckerman, did just publish uh, an excellent uh, journalistic account called Planet Palm uh, a month before my book appeared. Um, so somebody was working on it, but um, <laughs> it was sort of late, late in coming. Um, So that's why I sort of fell into it. Uh, I was really influenced by a lot of... um, uh, There had been some really good historical work on palm oil uh, in the 19th century, Um, a number of of really... significant books that that really influenced me. And so I I wanted to sort of extend that story into the 20th century um, and take it globally because these had been books uh, written by Africanist scholars for a largely Africanist audience. Um, And they hadn't really gotten much traction as far as I could tell outside of African history circles. Um, So I was hoping with this book to um, expand both the the geographical and the chronological scope of of this, um, of this story.
1: Wow. That makes sense. Uh, so, as I as I uh, mentioned to you earlier, I, I knew basically two things about palm oil, or I thought I knew two things about palm oil before I read your book. And one of them was that it's in a lot of things. In fact, I was eating some cookies earlier, and I noticed it was in them. Um, and mm-hmm. that my local zoo has a lot of times signs that tell me I should not be eating it to help protect endangered habitats and if there's anything I took away from your book, the, the primary thing was that it's much more complicated than that. <laughs> and these things aren't aren't at all that simple. Um, could you kind of talk s- some more about some of those complications?
0: Well, I'm, I'm glad that was the takeaway for you, because, it, I mean, if the, there was one uh, a one sentence blurb for the book, uh, it would be it's complicated. <laughs> um, you know, palm oil. Uh, is a really important commodity, but it's not one thing. Uh, It's produced in lots of different ways. It's used in lots of different ways. um, And that's changed uh, a great deal over time. Um, So it's not just one single thing. uh, that we can talk about uh, and so one of the things that I'm trying to show in the book um, is that historical evolution why um, the the uses for palm oil the systems for producing it have changed um, and how that interacts with consumption with the industrial uses of it um, and now i I conclude with this uh, the sense that it's complicated uh, because I See in history lessons that boycotts, for example, um, are not effective. Um, they don't take into account the complexity of, of the systems in which these commodities um, are being produced. Um, and so I'm, I've, I've looked at that uh, in, in other context. Um, you know, I had a, an article a number of years ago about um, rubber and cocoa and boycott campaigns in the early twentieth century. Um, and this has sort of shaped the way that I've, I've approached palm oil, um, seeing uh, the, the this fact that the idea of ethical consumption of even environmental uh, problems linked with commodity production isn't new. And I think we we can learn from the past and there's no, there's no obvious solutions that we can pull from the past, but we can learn that it's complicated and that we need Mm -hmm. um, really to learn more about each individual case, each individual situation.
1: Absolutely. So uh, speaking of complications, Mm -hmm. your book is, very impressive in just the, the range of subjects that are included in this narrative, <laughs> from colonialism and slavery to ecology and agriculture to gendered labor and global politics and markets. Um, so I'm wondering if if we could just take a step back for a second and if you could kind of walk us through how you organized all of this and sort of structured the book to put all of yeah. this together.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it was probably <laughs> overly ambitious in terms of the, the themes um, and, and geographical scope. Um, my organization uh, is ultimately chronological. Um, I think there's, uh, there were some elements that I thought might have worked more thematically, but ultimately I fell back on a uh, pretty strict chronological ordering um, because there were significant transitions at different points in time. Uh, transitions that are caused by technological changes uh, and by political changes, particularly colonialism. Um, And so I I, I stuck with that chronological narrative throughout most of the book. Uh, There's one chapter at the end on um, consumption that sort of jumps back in time a bit to fill in some of that story thematically. Um, And I think this is a a theme that I see in a lot of commodity histories, which is how do you balance the stories of production and consumption? Uh, I initially toyed with the idea of putting them in the same chapter um, of of taking a very rigorous chronological approach and talking about, for example, uh, 19th century British soap factories in the same chapter that I'm talking about 19th century palm oil producers in Nigeria. Uh, But I ultimately concluded that there was just too much of a story to tell uh, on each of these sides. And so so there is a thematic separation um, within that chronological ordering between Production and consumption, um, and I, I'm a little annoyed at myself. I, I couldn't find an elegant way around that, uh, but uh, as I said, it's it's something you see in in every commodity study I've read. Um, it just seems to be a a constraint of the genre.
1: Absolutely. Um, well, I th- I think it reads quite well regardless. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, so so kind of starting at the beginning. I mean, as you mentioned earlier, there's there's always, it seems, been this sort of moral question around the production and consumption of palm oil. So can you kind of take us back to that, that early moment of colonialism and slavery and how that is playing out?
0: Sure. Uh, and so this is... Uh... To orient readers, we're starting here in the 1810s, 1820s, um, when uh, Great Britain has moved to formally abolish the transatlantic slave trade. Which, as I as I stress in the book, it doesn't mean the slave trade stopped. Uh, it just meant that it was illegal for British citizens to participate in. Uh, but it starts this um, this movement in Britain. Um, and in European trading posts along the West African coast uh, toward uh, the pursuit of what they called legitimate commerce or legitimate trade, um, seeking out other objects uh, to buy instead of human captives. Um, And there's been a lot of really great scholarship recently that's highlighted the fact that legitimate trade coexisted with the slave trade for a long time in the 18th century. Uh, There are lots of other products like palm oil, um, gold, ivory, uh, various woods, beeswax, even all kinds of different <laughs> products that, that were that were sold out of, out of Western Africa. Um, and the emphasis after British abolition is in getting more of these commodities, getting enough of them uh, to keep the, the capital that's locked up in slaving ships and enslaving enterprises uh, to, to let them convert to these legitimate commodities uh, profitably. Um, and some firms do it. Uh, they succeed in, in making this pivot, uh, mostly to palm oil. Uh, because this is the thing that they can get enough of uh, to fill a ship and to make a voyage profitable. Um, And in the very earliest period, uh, the moralizing about palm oil um, is, I think, uh, a fairly cynical tactic used by merchants um, and some of their allies in British industry. Uh, They want lower tariffs, lower import tariffs on palm oil. Um, And, and, when Britain abolishes the slave trade in 1807, palm oil was classed as, as a drug, as a medicine, which reflected this much older um, historic use. Um, so it was a very high tariff. It wasn't competitive with the kinds of products that palm oil was substituting with. And so merchants and industrialists made this case that... Uh, if they bought more palm oil, they would be fighting slavery. That there was that there was a moral case for buying more palm oil and therefore lowering the taxes on palm oil. Um, and and I argue in the book that this was a fairly cynical uh, policy because these manufacturers didn't really care what they were using as long as it was cheap. Uh, they used palm oil interchangeably with tallow um, and other fats. Um, uh, the merchants had more of a vested interest uh, w- with their ships and, and trading connections in Western Africa, um, but ag- but again, this was a largely economic issue for them. I, I don't see a lot of evidence this is, that this was a deeply held moral issue for for many people involved. Uh, but it made for great marketing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you also argue a little in the book mm-hmm. that that a lot of these conversations are also linked to some very uh, deeply held racist assumptions um, about Africa and some of these places where oil palms are growing. And I, I was especially struck, you know, for many environmental historians, sort of a key part of their work involves showing how environments and landscapes that are supposedly natural or untouched are actually really the product of longstanding interactions between culture and nature. Um, and that's really a major theme here, too. Can you talk a little bit ab- more about sort of these um, supposedly wild oil palm forests mm-hmm. and how those inter- inter- um, yeah, interact with-, with colonial perceptions?
0: Yeah. And this is a point that I was uh, really influenced by by some earlier scholarship. Um, uh, Melissa Leach and James Fairhead, uh, two anthropologists, uh, did some really important work in the 1990s and and early 2000s on forest history and forest transitions in West Africa. Um, Their focus was not on oil palm. They were focusing on what we think of as the 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 traditional rainforest environment. Um, But they showed, I think, pretty conclusively uh, that our our notions of um, at least pre-colonial tropical Africa as just one giant forest with some small settlements hacked into it um, by slash and burn agriculture, that this was fiction, uh, that forest uh, did exist but was Constrained heavily by rainfall patterns uh, and by human and animal land use, um, fire in particular was a major constraint on the on the growth of forest. and, and The role of humans in managing grassland, fire, um, and and forested environments um, has been really significant for centuries. Um, I was also struck as I was working on the, on this chapter uh, by work by uh, another anthropologist, Pauline von Hellermann, who ha- has a book out on forestry in uh, southeastern Nigeria, Uh, which uh, picks up many of these themes that Fairhead and Leach introduce, um, this idea that these forests are anthropogenic landscapes, um, that they had not previously been seen that way uh, by certainly colonial um, administrators. Um, And so uh, this was, I think, a key claim for me to make in the book uh, that in the most of the 19th century and into the early 20th century, uh, Europeans view oil palms as a wild tree um, and it's not botanically a tree at all, although uh, we mm-hmm. I call it I colloquially call it a tree in the book just for, for ease of um uh, ease of writing. Um, but they see it as a forest tree, um, and they don't seem to really have a clear sense of what a forest is. Um, they describe walking through things that are literally plantations, uh, things that have been created specifically for the production of palm oil and other food crops, and Europeans write about them as if they're in a forest. Uh, they call them forests. And um, and I, I argue in the book that this was uh, you know, not just an environmental misunderstanding, uh, it was linked, it was rooted in uh, racist ideas that Africans were incapable of large-scale transformations of the landscape, of large-scale investments in agriculture. Um, so this was a theme that I, I, I may have overdone it in some sections of the book. Uh, Oil palms do grow wild in some places. They are exploited wild in some regions, uh, but the densest concentrations of oil palms historically in Western Africa were absolutely human creations. Um, so this was a really key argument I wanted to make in the book. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Uh, I, I was also interested in how um, dif- there is no sort of uniform way that uh, that harvesting and using oil palms plays out um, globally and that in different locations it, its history can take on very different forms um, without asking you to sort of recite mm-hmm. all of the contents of the book for us could you talk a little bit about how how um, the interaction between local residents, uh, colonial imperial nations and the oil palm industry sort of takes different different avenues
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, well, in so in sub-Saharan Africa, and uh, I, I, I mostly focus on West Africa in the book um, uh, because this is the the largest producing region um, in the continent. Uh, there is oil palm production um, in some parts of Central and Eastern Africa in the period, but West Africa is by far the biggest producer. Um, in this region, uh, we already had by the time. Uh, the colonizers arrive and seize control of these these territories by the late 20, by the late 19th century. We already have a fairly well established palm oil industry. Uh, there are these incredibly complex networks of uh, traders and 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 um, uh, refiners and bulkers who go out into the countryside and collect palm oil at local markets, um, and gradually uh, consolidate it into larger and larger containers, um, and eventually sell it onto the coast. Um, And this was a system that had worked uh, fairly well throughout the 19th century um, in in, uh, supplying palm oil to European industries. Um, And when the colonizers uh, seize control of these areas, in some cases, particularly in Nigeria, they're fairly content to let the system continue playing out. Um, And in fact, the the, uh, imposition of what's sometimes called the Pax Colonia, the colonial peace uh, that comes after a very violent conquest, um, really does uh, encourage trade. It makes travel safer in a number of key regions. And there is a massive boom, particularly in Nigeria, um, in palm and palm kernel exports um, after the the initial uh, wars of colonization are are over. in other regions, particularly in uh, Germany's colonies in Cameroon and Togo, uh, uh, German scientists do some very early work with oil palm and realize that they could get much higher yields in a plantation. Um, and uh, they see some examples in pre existing um, African agricultural systems. Um, in, in what is now uh, the country of Benin, for example, there's a long tradition of, of intentionally planting oil palms in what is basically a plantation, although it's, it's mixed with other crops. Um, and so uh, these German scientists see the plantation model uh, almost from the beginning of their, their colonial encounter with oil palm as the way forward. Uh, they want uh, to replace um, the, uh, the farming systems that had produced oil palm groves um, traditionally, replace it with an orderly monocrop plantation. Um, and this model fizzles out uh, in, in the German colonies, which which are conquered in 1914 by Britain and France. Uh, but this is the model that's then exported uh, to a number of places, including Congo uh, in Western Africa, but most importantly to Southeast Asia, um, to to uh, what is now uh, Indonesia and Malaysia. Um, and in fact, some of the same people who are involved uh, bring this model uh, from Africa. Uh, to Southeast Asia. Um, A number of the scientists and and, uh, entrepreneurs who are uh, affiliated with the African oil palm industry uh, transfer themselves, their expertise, um, and and some of their biases and and their their misconceptions, uh, they transfer them to Southeast Asia, uh, where they find a colonial environment that is much more amenable to plantation agriculture. Uh, The the indigenous population is much smaller. puts up much less um, armed and unarmed resistance uh, to colonial land grabs, um, and colonial governments are much more willing uh, to alienate land, um, and they also provide lots of imported labor. um, uh, And this this issue of getting land and labor is ultimately what confounds a lot of plantation projects in in Africa itself. So uh, the colonial uh, system, there's nothing universal in the nature of colonialism that leads to plantations in one place and uh, uh, this reliance on small scale producers in others. It really boils down to um, uh, individual empires uh, and individual policies uh, in in the specific colonies. What's possible um, uh, in terms of colonial exploitation uh, and what's not?
1: -hmm yeah, I think you you said something like there is no sort of inherent um, inherent result of violence related to oil palms but that it's very contingent mm-hmm. on the sort of environmental and political context in which it is is being produced. Um, I, I was interested to, you know in, in several of the the locations that you discuss, there's often local pushback. Uh, either against larger companies or against colonial governments um, or even individuals. And I was struck that often it seems like that resistance is being led by women. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about sort of the, uh, the gendered labor and sort of structures involved in oil palm um, growth and, and palm oil production and, and why women might, might often be at the forefront of that kind of protest.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And this sort of foray into gender history, I thought was was really important to do in this book, um, with the caveat that I have no training in this. I'm I'm really, (laughs) I'm I'm trying my best.
1: I Um, I thought it was very interesting.
0: And I'm building here on a lot of work. The historian Susan Martin wrote some really fantastic works, and a number of other scholars, Gloria Chuku and and many others, have written about um, the gender dynamics of, of agriculture in general. Um, but in some cases, uh, specific to, to palm oil um, in in African history, um, and so gender division of labor um, is is an inescapable concept when we're looking at, at palm oil historically um, in in the African communities where uh, the oil palm is is indigenous. Uh, uh, there's an almost universal division of labor between harvesting palm fruit, uh, which is what the, the oil comes from and actually making the oil itself by, by pounding and cooking the fruit. Um, and so men always climb trees. Uh, this is a, a cross-cultural phenomenon. I have not found a single example of, of a community in which women were permitted or encouraged to climb trees, to harvest fruit. Um, and there, there are, yeah, I'm not sure there's a, there's a, Specific reason for why that is a, a such a universal trait, um, but 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 it is, um, and uh, the actual production of palm oil, which is uh, which is cooking work, um, is almost always historically performed by, by women. So there's already a strong gender division of labor. Um, the export boom in the 19th century starts to unravel that as men start to do some of the tasks that had been previously reserved for women, um, large slave owning um, planters who have big big plantations uh, use male labor to do traditionally female jobs. Um, but the big pushback comes with the onset of colonial rule uh, where colonizers, individual businesses um, are trying to, to introduce changes that they think are better, that they think will improve um, the palm oil industry, but which in almost every case, strike specifically at women um, and at women's involvement in the industry. So the machinery, for example, uh, that many colonial administrations try to, um, try to introduce, it replaces women's labor, but not men's labor in harvesting. Uh, there is no harvesting machine. There still is no harvesting machine. Um, uh, and so uh, the dislocation of women's labor uh, pr- becomes a real rallying point um, uh, f- for women politically in a number of, of parts of, of West Africa. Uh, women are also uh, uh, very, um, very agitated by threats to their incomes from the market sale of palm fruit and other palm products. Um, in most parts of Western Africa, uh, the sale of foodstuffs um, and, and in some cases other primary commodities in markets uh, is a women's task. It's a gender task. Uh, and so when men sold palm fruit to foreign companies, they cut Women, in most cases, to cut their wives out of this economic opportunity. They no longer have access to palm fruit and other products to sell in the marketplace, uh, to oil kernels. Um, and so on, uh, and so the the threat to women's livelihoods um, is much more pronounced than the threat to men's livelihoods, um, and and so we see in a number of cases uh, women leading political resistance uh, to these these efforts to uh, transform to modernize um, uh, uh, palm oil industries.
1: Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. And it really touches on another thing that surprised me about your book, which is that, you know, I sort of imagined this largely as a story of export. But one of the things mm-hmm. you really underscores that this is also a story of internal um, consumption of palm oil.
0: Yeah, absolutely, um, and this is something that I, I hadn't really thought about until I was, you know, halfway through writing the book. Um, uh, and a part of the the difficulty in talking about domestic consumption is quantifying it. Uh, the the statistical evidence we have uh, for 19th and even 20th century Sub-Saharan Africa is not great. Um, Much of it comes from, all of it comes from uh, colonial sources uh, that have their own limitations, their own agendas in data collection. So uh, we have a very constrained um, uh, data set to work with. uh, But Working within those limitations, um, I found a number of of different estimates for for domestic palm oil consumption that were much higher than what I was seeing in in the scholarly literature, uh, which tended to have some very low estimates for per capita consumption. Um, And so uh, these really high estimates, you know, some as high as, I think, 60 kilograms a year per person. Um, for both food, but also cosmetic use, lamp oil, um, other uses of palm oil. Uh, th- these made me realize that per capita, people in many of these colonies were using more oil themselves than they were selling for export. Um, and uh, this was true in a number of cases um, up through the 1950s. Um, and uh, even after that period, uh, with, with, with the independence movements that bring about the end of formal colonial rule in Africa, it um, African states remained big consumers of palm oil and, in fact, become big importers of palm oil as their domestic uh, production fails to, to keep up with demand. Um, and th- so this was a side of the story that I thought had not gotten very much attention in the scholarly literature because historians, global historians, are often focused on flows. We want to see things moving from one place to another, and so we're looking at exports. Um, but in this case, domestic consumption uh, was, was actually really important theme, and it's a theme that carries into the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Um, I argue in some of the later chapters that a lot of the projects that have created our contemporary oil palm boom uh, were rooted in domestic food consumption needs and food security issues, uh, not in uh, the pursuit of, of this global export market.
1: Excellent. Well, not, not to drag us back to the question of flows, um, but we have we have talked more, I think, here about sort of the uh, cultivation and harvesting of the oil palm. But I'd also like to talk a little bit more about the industrialization side of this story, because um, that's really, in many ways, sort of the second half is um industrialization and and the role that palm oil plays in that. And especially when it comes to industrializing food. So I wonder if Mm -hmm. you could just talk through a little bit of that aspect of the story.
0: Yeah. And this is something that I went back and forth with writing the book, was was basically trying to decide how important was palm oil in the story of the industrial revolution in Europe in particular. Um, because at, at times it seems really important, and at times it seems incredibly marginal. Um, and I ultimately settled for sort of a wishy-washy position that um, uh, it was significant, but not indispensable. Um, and so... Palm oil enters these industries, uh, primarily soap and candles um, originally, um, and then tin plating, um, a bunch of other minor uses, and then finally food uses by the end of the 19th century. It enters these industries as a substitute. Uh, there is nothing brand new that um, is invented around or for palm oil. It's always a substitute commodity. Uh, it's doing something that another thing had already done. Um, and in most cases, palm oil is used because it's cheaper um, th- than the alternative, um, which was tallow or whale oil for, for most of these industries. Um, plate is the one case where palm oil is actually uh, technically superior to other products. Um, uh, and, and in tin plating, uh, this is this is one of the probably the most obscure use of palm oil in industry. Um, tin plating was used uh, to protect molten tin as metal sheets were dipped into it, um, and uh, it was also used in the in the process of rolling out steel sheets. And, and palm oil is still used in rolling out steel sheets in some industries today. So it's a very very long lived industrial use. Um, but in most of these other uses, palm oil is just the cheap substitute for something else. Um, and that cheap substitute does matter. Um, I have, uh, the figures for the first half of the 19th century are not very reliable. Um, but by the end of the 19th century, uh, Britain, which is the single biggest importer of palm oil, uh, is importing about as much palm oil from Africa as it is importing tallow from all of the rest of the world. Um, which is significant. Our tallow was a huge industry uh, from from cows and sheep, you know, spread across uh, Russia, Australia, New Zealand, Argentina, um, uh, you know, gigantic areas of land uh, put under cattle production. And then tallow is one of the major commodities that comes out of it. Um, and so the fact that palm oil imports were were matching that, were sort of uh, augmenting those imports by 100%, I think, uh, is really significant. Um, So palm oil helps keep products cheap. Um, It helps keep soap, candles, eventually margarine, um, cheap and accessible uh, as populations in the industrializing countries grow um, and as buying power grows, as people begin to consume more and more. Um, This cheapness means that they can consume things, uh, that there's not shortages of fats. so that's, that's sort of the 19th century story, and it carries over into the early 20th century um, for a bit. Uh, but palm oil falls on some really hard times in the 1920s and 1930s um, because it is the substitute. Um, it's It's always filling in for something else. And by that point, there are a lot of cheap something else's. Uh, petroleum is beginning to displace palm oil in some industrial uses. Uh, Cottonseed oil has become a gigantic industry um, in the United States. And it's basically a you know a byproduct of cotton fiber production. So it's incredibly cheap. Um, and uh, into the 1930s and into the the Depression, uh, there's a massive boom in whaling um, as northern countries uh, try to again keep products like margarine cheap. Uh, So there's lots and lots of competitors and palm oil uh, really only keeps its market share by being the cheapest. Um, And this is really devastating for the people who are are growing palm oil um, um, in Africa and and by that point also in in Southeast Asia. Um, And there's a transition moment that I don't really pin down in the book um, because because I don't think it can be pinned down. But sometime in the 60s and 70s, we start to see the next phase um, where uh, the oil palm uh, industry starts to gain much more prominence in in industry. Um, uh, The the amount of palm oil available starts to reshape um, uh, industry around it, particularly uh, starting in Malaysia, which is the first really giant Southeast Asian exporter. Uh, Malaysia consciously invests after it gains independence from Britain in developing industries that use palm oil um, um, in in more refined products. They're trying to move up the ladder of industrialization away from primary commodities. Uh, They spend a lot of money researching ways of using palm oil uh, as a substitute in different areas. And so they're often competing with petroleum products, which many manufacturers are are under pressure to get rid of by the 1980s and 1990s. Um, uh, And they're also creating entirely new product categories um, uh, for for these, um, uh, for palm oil and related chemicals. Um, And then the final Big change is something that I think has been uh, the best documented. There's a lot of really great investigative journalism that's come out in the last five or six years around this, and this is uh, the massive flood of palm oil into industrial foods in northern countries. Um, this is linked to the um, uh, the the ban that most countries have now enacted uh, on trans fats, uh, which trans fats are, are a product of partial hydrogenation, and the biggest competitor for palm oil by the 1980s and 1990s was partially hydrogenated soybean oil, uh, mostly produced in the U.S., sold very cheaply around the world. Um, And so when that partially hydrogenated product um, becomes unacceptable for food uses, manufacturers have no choice but to find a substitute And palm oil is the perfect substitute. Um, And it's the perfect substitute in part because partially hydrogenated soybean oil was uh, calibrated to imitate palm oil. Um, so it's sort of a, a replacement for a replacement for a replacement um, mm-hmm. coming back in. Um, and, and so uh, this is why we suddenly start seeing palm oil in northern countries popping up on all of our labels. And I keep saying in northern countries because in Southeast Asia, in Sub-Saharan Africa, in parts of Latin America, in East Asia, uh, palm oil has been in industrial foods for a long time. Um, uh, it's, you know... Uh, Going back to the 1960s, it was a staple cooking oil um, in many parts of of Southeast and East Asia, although it wasn't usually sold as palm oil. It was just sold as refined cooking oil. And uh, this is something that I've tried to do in the book. Um, I think Jocelyn Zuckerman's new book, Planet Palm, does a really great job of of using the case study of India um, to sort of look at just how widely uh, palm oil has entered um, uh, food systems and food ways uh, all around the globe. Um, And this is sort of what gives us our our current moment where palm oil seems to be everywhere.
1: Sure, absolutely. Mm Absolutely. And then in that sort of same same time period at the end of the 20th century, it seems like that's really when we also see this environmentalist um, question arising around palm oil uh, and especially its growth. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that too and how it's problematic, right? There's, there's much more going on than um, often we're sort of given the impression of.
0: Yeah, and I'll just backtrack for one second and say that, that, that palm oil was everywhere um, because of this surge in production. All right, it's everywhere because it's cheap. It is still the cheapest vegetable oil on the market. Um, so it's in, it's in all of these products because it's cheap. And why is it cheap? It's cheap because um, a massive plantation boom, mostly in Southeast Asia, but more recently spreading out to other parts of the world, um, has created uh, just gigantic uh, monocultural landscape that are really efficient at turning out oil palm very cheap or palm oil very cheaply, um, and so this is a, a process that I argue the book begins uh, really in the 1950s. It begins with uh, the end of. Um, Uh, of of British uh, colonial rule in what is now Malaysia, uh, where the British are looking around for development projects. Uh, They've had this organization called the uh, Colonial Development Corporation, which becomes the Commonwealth Development Corporation. Um, And it's looking for new ideas that will stimulate exports, that will create jobs. Um, And they see oil palm as a very attractive crop because it can first and foremost provide uh, food for local industries uh, to feed local consumers. Um, And it seems to have a potentially unlimited export demand. Um, there's always somebody who needs vegetable oil around the world um, because it is so interchangeable um, in many industries. Um, so that, so there's a lot of uh, investment in it. Um, and Malaysia's leaders who bring the country into independence um, like these ideas. They're active proponents of them. Um, and they extend a, a model of uh, balancing traditional plantation expansion, uh, with smallholder expansion. That is with, with individual farmers who are lumped together in, um, in, in groups where they are basically managing monocultural plantations, but they are individual owners. Um, um, and, uh, both the plantations and the smallholders together uh, can take advantage of new uh, breeding techniques, uh, uh, new um, uh, scientific uh, discoveries about the oil palm's nutrient needs, for example. Uh, and these things. Uh, Allow yields to grow, I think, fourfold uh, between the 1950s and the 1980s. Um, So it's a massively efficient system, uh, and it's something that then extends outside of Malaysia. The World Bank is watching what's going on with this British project in the late 1950s and into the 1960s as Malaysia becomes independent. And the World Bank starts promoting it as a model uh, in Indonesia, uh, in Nigeria, um, in a number of other countries, uh, seeing this as a, a recipe for success of combining plantation agriculture agriculture with smallholder agriculture, giving individual farmers a stake in the venture. Um, And the theory here is that this has socioeconomic benefits, it it helps poor farmers earn earn a living, uh, but it also has political benefits because poor farmers don't become angry voters uh, who are are challenging uh, plantation expansion through government, uh, which was a very real concern for for plantation companies in the 1960s, 1970s. Um, So there's this massive Boom that's underway. It's financed by the World Bank um, and other agencies. Um, And the environmental concerns come relatively late, uh, the late 1970s into the early 1980s. Um, And they're driven in part by environmental campaigners, um, groups like Greenpeace, for example, that are paying attention to the loss of rainforest. But they're also really driven by campaigns for indigenous rights. Um, And uh, the issue in Southeast Asia of habitat loss and the protection of indigenous um, land rights um, uh, are are linked uh, because many of these uh, forest environments that uh, plantation projects turn to Were inhabited by uh, different indigenous uh, communities. Um, And so there's a really vibrant movement in Southeast Asia, um, in Europe, less so in North America, um, that's that's trying to uh, combine environmental protection and indigenous rights. They're sort of lumping them together as a package. Um, And they're successful in creating this idea that oil palm agriculture is destructive, that it is threatening habitats, that it is displacing indigenous people, uh, but they're not very effective in accomplishing anything. Um, They don't stop any projects. Uh, The World Bank does agree to um, change the way it assesses indigenous land rights um, and the stakes of indigenous communities and projects in the 1980s. Uh, But I I have one example in the book in Sumatra where the bank, having just passed these new regulations, proceeds to ignore them uh, in a development that displaces one community. Um, So there's a lot of awareness, but not a lot of tangible um, um, results that that come out of this. Um, and I, I don't want to downplay the, the incredible advocacy work that uh, environmental and human rights campaigners are doing, but uh, I think the situation today is not all that much different um, uh, in a number of countries. Um, there, there's a, a, an incredible amount of awareness of, of uh, the, both uh, the environmental problems and the human rights issues, the land rights issues, uh, but still not a great deal of action um, that's coming out of it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, um, I mean, there, there's so much that's that's at stake in terms of um, labor rights and environment, mm-hmm. especially not only, um, you know, deforestation and endangered species, but then even how that figures into global warming um, and, and other concern. I mean, it really comes back to what we said in the beginning, right? That it's complicated. Um, and I'd like to maybe, ask you a question that might be mm-hmm. out of your comfort zone a little, because I know you're a historian and we historians are much more comfortable um, providing context and history than prescriptions. Um, sure. so that's job. <laughs> but if I could ask you now as a, as an expert on this, to get on your soapbox a little, wh- what do you think makes sense going forward in terms of, is it policies? Is it uh, more local management or, you know, do you have mm-hmm. a sense of, of future
0: directions? Well, I'll I'll have one suggestion, and my thinking on this Mm -hmm. has changed even since I finished writing the manuscript, which is that uh, biofuels uh, seem like a, a... Probably very misguided idea, um, and and the amount of palm oil that is going into biodiesel, uh, even in the last year, has it's skyrocketed? It's uh, Indonesia is aiming to turn forty percent of its palm oil into biodiesel uh, with, within a year or two. Uh, it just it's an astounding amount, um, and it is something that I think we need to think about when proponents of the industry talk about how much oil the world needs, how much vegetable oil the world needs. Um, And and I fall into this trap um, in the book as well, uh, that the world has a certain demand for for palm oil. uh, But that demand is uh, not one big thing. Uh, There are lots of different elements of it. um, And the incredible uh, rise of biofuel, I think, calls into question how much palm oil we, we really need. I um, mean, you know, is is biofuel, is biodiesel produced from palm oil, really, uh, you know, an environmentally um, attractive substitute? It's not cost effective. It's not cheaper than petroleum fuel. Um, so there's no there's no economic case for it. Um, and so if, if we stopped using palm oil biodiesel overnight, uh, the world would be glutted with palm oil. Uh, we would have way too much palm oil on the market, um, and there would be little incentive to expand. Uh, so I would say uh, right there, my, my first prescription would be take a serious look at biofuel policies. Um, but beyond that, uh, I think echoing what you said uh, when you asked me the question, um, uh, local issues are absolutely key. Uh, local Stakes In every particular case, the context will be different. Uh, Land tenure is different from community to community. Uh, The gender issues are different from community to community. Um, And many plantation projects and smallholder projects do not do a very good job of um, recognizing that gender exists, uh, that men and women are not just uniform laborers or a uniform household. Um, uh, And so I think uh, a great deal of um, investment in learning about local communities and what they need and and what they want. Uh, And in some cases, what they want is oil palm. Uh, It can be a very lucrative crop uh, for communities. It can be a crop that they can balance with um, food production and and other needs. uh, but all too often, you know, uh, the, the sorts of plantation companies uh, and, uh, that are uh, developing new projects um, don't really have much interest in this. They may do, they may pay lip service to consultation with indigenous leaders uh, because they're legally required to, um, but in many cases, these consultations. Um, aren't enough. They're not satisfactory, and and people challenge uh, the results. Um, So, uh, yeah, greater attention to local conditions, uh, you know, paying attention to what people are actually doing, uh, what they want, um, and thinking about how oil palm is going to change uh, their landscape, their environment, the way that they live.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Does that, I mean, where does that leave consumers? Do you think that this is not not a consumer-driven um, sort of future for palm oil? You know, because we've talked about boycotts and their sort of mm-hmm.
0: ineffectiveness. Yeah, well, I'll say I don't think we can buy our way out of <laughs> global environmental crisis. Um, you know, overconsumption is 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 the root cause of, of uh, a lot of these issues. Um, so I mentioned biodiesel in particular is one form of consumption, a consumption choice, a policy choice um, uh, that could be very quickly changed with with massive consequences. Um, but uh, end consumers can only use consumer power when there are things to consume. Uh, and so we as consumers, don't have a lot of choices about buying, for example, sustainable certified palm oil. Uh, the Roundtable for Sustainable Palm Oil is, is one organization. There are others um, that, that try to certify palm oil production as sustainable. Um, and I think the last numbers I saw, um, only 20% of their certified oil actually sells at a certified oil price. And the, the premium that they're asking is minuscule. It's a very small premium over the market price of palm oil. Uh, but manufacturers don't want to pay it uh, because they argue consumers don't care. Consumers want the cheapest product available. Uh, but my argument is that consumers don't know. Uh, they don't have choices. Uh, they don't have opportunities uh, until manufacturers uh, provide them. So, so I do see industrial consumers as, as the real um, key to um, consumer-driven change, um, if it's possible at all. Um, you know, Until uh, companies are under sufficient consumer pressure to change their sourcing practices or, su- or sufficient regulatory pressure to change their sourcing practices, uh, they have no incentive to. Um, and, and as long as palm oil is the cheapest thing available, uh, that's what they'll keep buying.
1: Sure. That makes sense. Well, um, I got to say, this has been great. And I feel like we have barely scratched the surface of what is in this <laughs> excellent book. Um, so I, I hope that everyone listening will go get their own copy and read it and enjoy it. Um, but I don't want to take up too much more of your time. So before we go, though, I do want to ask you two related questions. And the first is, could you tell us what you're working on these days? And then the second is, do you have anything upcoming that you'd like to promote?
0: Sure. Um, I am I'm actually taking a... a- an amazing break from from writing at the moment um i have some uh long term projects uh, in the works that are trying to build on some of the things that come up in in this book um i'm particularly interested in uh the role of the us government and usaid in promoting oil palm projects in um in central america i think this is a, a, a an area that is um Really interesting and, and really um, timely, given the the growth of oil palm in Central America uh, and its role with the migration crisis. Um, so that's something that that I plan on getting back to when whenever I can get back to the archives. Um, and uh, I'm also thinking more broadly about agroforestry, which is a really um, attractive concept these days uh, in, in uh, groups that are looking at sustainable palm oil. Um, and I, I think I argue in the book that um, uh, pre-colonial agricultural systems um, of oil palm cultivation in, in, in Africa, for example, were already doing agroforestry. Um, it's something that that uh, evolved um, over many generations. Um, and so I'm interested in how uh, Agroforestry, as a word, as a concept, has evolved, I and mean, I'm particularly interested in comparing the the anglophone and the francophone uh, concepts here. Uh, this is something that, uh, in the book, I, I noticed there's a real um, a real gap in some eras uh, in scientific communication and scholarly communication between uh, Anglophone and francophone communities who are working on the same issues. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested in seeing sort of the parallel evolution of agroforestry um, in those two, um, two two scientific communities.
1: Wow, fascinating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm genuinely very much mm-hmm. looking forward to reading that in some future future book. Um, And then anything you'd like to promote before we go?
0: Oh, um, uh, I would just put in a plug, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, j- journalist Zoclin, Jocelyn Zuckerman has a great new book called Planet Palm Out. Uh, geographer Case Watkins also has another amazing book called Palm Oil Diaspora, just out this summer, um, about the the amazing history of, of palm oil in Brazil, and uh, the state of Bahia. Um, so please check out those other books. There's lots of great work on oil palm coming. Um, you know, I, I really hope that this book, um, if you read it, uh, is the first book about oil palm you read, not the last. Um, so that, thanks point. for giving me a chance to talk about it here today.
1: Sure. Thanks so much for coming. This has just been a great conversation. Um, I want to thank you for being here. And thanks to you listeners for joining us again on New Books and Environmental Studies. Take care of yourselves.